0: God's goodness, the passage we will be looking at this morning happens on a Sunday when we have just celebrated the Lord's Supper Uh, to be reminded why we need Jesus. Do you like going to medical tests? This week, I uh, did some lab work to check on my cholesterol because a few years ago, uh, some similar tests revealed that I was uh, prone to and uh, having high cholesterol. And uh, as I reflected on that, the medical tests did not make me sick, Uh, nor do the medical tests make me well. They simply reveal what our condition is. And most people don't like to go to get themselves examined for various reasons. One of them is the fear. What if I hear the news I don't want to hear? We, we cringe sometimes at the idea of going and doing medical tests. We can become anxious or fearful, but just because medical exams... Reveal what is wrong with us, it does not mean that we should ignore them or hate them. Quite the opposite, we should get checked out every so often, yearly, to make sure that we catch anything that's wrong. And if something bothers us, we should get tested and examined. The goodness of medical exams, as much as we hate them, the goodness is that they reveal if something is wrong with us. Now, we don't blame the the tests or the exams when they reveal a disease in us. Medical exams are not to be blamed or rejected just because they reveal something malfunctioning in us. In a similar way, God's law functions as a means of revealing Our condition, our state. And the same way, we should not hate or ignore God's law just because it reveals what is wrong with us. This morning, we are looking at a passage of Scripture in our series to the book of Romans uh, in which we get to hear the summary, the conclusion of the diagnostic or of diagnosis. That God has for all humanity. And this morning, uh, the condition that we get to hear about that all humanity is under can be summarized in two words under sin. The universal condition under sin. Would you open? God's Word to Romans chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 20. These are sobering words to hear that our condition, all humanity's condition, is under sin. Let's listen to God's report of all of us, of all humanity. And we may not like this news. We may cringe at hearing this news. But it is healthy for us to hear this news, if we hear it in time and are able to respond appropriately. So let's listen to God's Word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of his word and the hearing? Let's pray. Father, the words that we have just read are sobering. And yet we must pay attention to them. If we want lasting remedy, Father, help us speak to our hearts in a way that our eyes may be opened, in a way that our hearts would be softened, in a way that our will would be changed and broken and willing to respond to your truth. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. the words we have just read could be summarized in the following way. All are under sin, helpless on our own, and justly deserving God's condemnation. All are under sin, helpless on our own, and justly deserving God's condemnation. This is the report that the Apostle Paul gives at the conclusion of an important section of this book of Romans. Uh, The first major section of the book uh, that started in chapter 1, verse 18, ends here in chapter 3, verse 20. And this is the conclusion. All are under sin, helpless on our own, and guilty, justly deserving God's condemnation. This sentence or this argument that Paul brings, this report that he brings, uh, is divided in our text in, in two parts. Uh, the first part is very long because it has a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, the second part, last few verses, verses 19 and 20, uh, provide the the concluding statement. I wonder if you noticed how many verses are quoted in our text from the Old Testament. Quite a few. This is a way of Paul saying, let me bring you the final evidence that what I have been trying to convince you of is actually from the Bible. When I was growing up, One of the songs I remember learning as a young child uh, was the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. You continue the rest. For the Bible tells me so. And that song sticks to my mind, not only because it was one of the first songs I've learned and memorized, but because it's so simple easy to remember, and true. But when we think about the story of the gospel, of the love of Jesus for us sinners, we must actually consider that before we get to speak about the news about Jesus in the gospel, there's a few other parts of this news of the gospel that we must also speak then we must also lay out and not rush too quickly over that and just sort of get to the positive part. Because if we rush too quickly to just get to Jesus without understanding why we need him, uh, Jesus may just seem like a good idea, nice to have around in your back pocket. And actually miss the reason why Jesus is so crucial to us as human beings. So therefore, I thought, just that song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, use that as a way to summarize what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach in this passage. The two points he wants to bring to our attention in this concluding passage may be stated this way. Point number one. I'm a sinner, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the first point that Paul is trying to bring in our text from verse 9 all the way to verse 18. Look at how he begins. What then? Are we better than they? He's starting, or he's, he's, he's saying these, wor- these words to the, to the Jewish person that he's been dialoguing with all throughout chapter 2, trying to convince the Jews that they too are in need of the justification of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. So he says, what then? Are we better than they? The we being we Jews, they being the Gentiles. And he goes on to answer, not at all, for we have already charged... That both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. This is what Paul has been trying to convince us from the beginning of this section in in 118 all the way now to now. Paul concludes the first major part of his argument of this book. And he hammers home this point about sin. What is he saying about sin in this section? There's, There's four Subpoints that he wants to hammer home about sin through, this, through these words. And the first one is the, the bondage of sin, the bondage of sin. Notice how Paul describes that all are under sin. Now, the, the, to be under something, uh, and particularly to be under sin, uh, includes two parts, or two facets here. On one side. It assumes and implies that we are sinners. Second, it also implies that we are under the power of sin. Uh, stating our condition that we are under sin may be misunderstood. Or we may draw a, a, a wrong implication. And let me give you an example of a wrong implication. To be under uh, somebody's influence may come across as if I... It's not my fault. So let's think, for example, today in, in our political uh, world stage, uh, the country of China, the people of China are under communism. And if you were to talk to any Chinese person, just a common person, you you probably would get the the sense. They're, they're stuck under it and they don't know what to do. It's not their fault. It's not like they've chosen to, to stay under communism. But they're, they are under a regime that is communist. And, and being under that kind of a power or influence may give the impression, well, yeah, but the, the common person doesn't want to be under that influence. They're just stuck under it. If we have that impression to the conversation about being under sin, we totally missed the point. It would be a wrong implication to take. Because being under sin, as Paul will unpack for us in the, in the quotations from the Old Testament, it's not like we, are, we have become victims under some tyranny, tyrannical power that is over us. And we really would like to be away from this tyrannical power, but we can't. We're just stuck under it. That is not how Scripture speaks about the notion of being under sin. No, we're not victims under sin. We are perpetrators. We are willing participants. And this is what the quotations from the Old Testament will show us in a second. So the phrase, all are under sin, is aimed to show us the realm in which we all live, in bondage to sin, under the power of sin, under the corrupting influences of sin, and this is our choice. We're not mere victims. What does the Bible say about our sin? What does this passage say about our sin? That we are under bondage. But it says something else. We, We see a second point about what, What does it mean or why we're under sin? We see the certainty of sin. How do we know that we are under sin? Up to this point in the book, the Apostle Paul would bring up examples from life, what people do, to show that they are sinners. But at this moment, he changes his strategy. The evidence he now brings to prove that we are sinners is no longer human experience, The evidence is Scripture. How do I know that I'm a sinner? Because the Bible tells me so. In verses 10 through 18, Paul brings about eight verses from the Old Testament, weaving them together, combining them, proving the sinfulness of all people. And the verses quoted in this section of Scripture come mostly not from the law. Not from the first five books of the Bible. They come mostly from the Psalms and from Isaiah and some other passages as well. But here we see the certainty of sin. How do we know that all humanity is under sin? At the end of the day, it's not merely our experience of sin, but the reality that Scripture tells us all are under sin. And that includes you and me. It also, we see here, the the universality of sin. Paul begins in this list of quotations from the Old Testament, the first Verse, he quotes, as it, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. This description f- serves as a heading uh, for all that he's going to quote from the Old Testament. Words that come from Psalm 14, in this, in this quotation, and in, really in this verse, in this list of, of quotations, we see that the none or no one is repeated over and over again. It's actually the red thread that seems to be tying all the Old Testament quotations together. None, no one. The point of this repetition is to show that sin has affected absolutely everyone. Now, for the Jewish person, and imagine, imagine that the person who's first hearing this is is this Jewish dialogue partner that Paul has been talking with. For the Jewish person to hear this, was a challenge. At, at the beginning of chapter 3, if you remember, Paul asked if there was any advantage to being a Jewish person. And the answer he gave was, yes, there is an advantage to being a Jewish person. So you can imagine being bolstered by that advantage. Okay, there is an advantage to be a Jewish person. How deflating it must have Been to hear now this part that the advantage that Jewish people had, namely in having the law of God, would still not put them in a different category when it came to God's condemnation and the sinfulness of all humanity. Paul answers the question Is there any advantage for the Jewish person to be any better? And the answer is no. Yes, there's advantages to being a Jew, but it is not going to make you any better. I wonder if you see this shock that a Jewish person would feel. What do you mean? You told me there's advantage in being a Jew, and now you're telling me I'm no better than the rest of the world? It was shocking, humbling, devastating, devastating. But the point of this for us is to recognize no matter how good we may think we are, reality is we too are in the same category of no one is righteous, none, not one. The rest of these quotations also show not only the universality of sin, but also they show the pervasiveness of sin. In verses 10 through 18, the, the references that Paul brings up from the Old Testament, he shows us several facets of the effects of sin on us. We see a number of body parts or body uh, elements in us that are all affected by sin. It starts in verse 11 with our minds. We are corrupted at the level of our minds. Look at verse 11, no one Understands our minds, our, our the ability to understand who God is and who we are has been affected and corrupted by sin. Therefore, even my ability to understand on my own is no longer a reliable ability, a reliable skill that I have. But he goes on further. Sin affects not only our minds and our understanding. Sin affects our will. We are corrupted at the level of our wills. Look at verse 11 again. No one seeks for God. In verse 12, all have turned aside. Again, this is not like the Chinese person who would wish, who would seek to to get rid of their oppressive government And experience freedom. No, our condition is that for us, sin has corrupted us at the level not only of our minds, but of our wills. So that no one seeks after God. We all have turned aside. This is why scripture speaks of humanity being under sin. It's It's never a sense of just being victims of sin, but being perpetrators of it. We have turned aside. We have not sought God. Also, we are told that sin corrupts us at the level of our actions. Look at verse 12. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. Any goodness that we may think that we have has been tainted, has been stained by the corruption of our sin. Uh, We people may give each other uh, the qualification, oh, that that was great great job, good job here, good job there, high-five here, high-five there, we may be excited about the, the goodness that we can do to one another. But at the end of the day, in God's sight, our rebellion has stained and corrupted every good that we may think we do or are. We are also corrupted at the level Of our speech. So we've been corrupted at the level of our minds. We've been corrupted at the level of our wills. We've, We've been corrupted at the level of our actions. We've been corrupted at the level of our speech. Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul brings up several Old Testament references that expose how sin affects our speech. Does it surprise you? That Paul would go here. And as a matter of fact, the longest quotations of all the sin areas, of all the areas that have been affected by sin in in our lives, the longest quotations are actually here on this base. Speech. The tongue. Listen. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Friends, do we see the sins of our tongues as evidence of our sinful nature? The way we speak to one another betrays that we are under sin. Every one of us. To say that the throat is an open grave means that we use our mouths to speak in ways that kill people. Not physically, but through words. Because our words have that kind of power. And to be an open grave, it's like people can be thrown in all day long, continuously. That's the power of our speech. The mouth also is a place that utters lies, the tongue that speaks lies. The mouth becomes a, a venue of venom, inflicting poison on others, like snakes inflict poison. It becomes a place of curses. It becomes a place that expresses bitterness. So when we engage in a verbal fight, with those around us, when we are in in relationships of conflict with one another, and who doesn't? Friends, we have evidence of our sinful nature. Not just evidence of others' sinful nature. We have evidence of our sinful nature well, friends, sin affects how we speak to one another. We're also corrupted at the level of our relationships. Look at verse 15 through 17. These verses point out the violence, the ruin, and the misery, the lack of peace that so often characterizes human relationships. But what's emphasizing these verses, verses 15 through 17, is the quickness their feet are swift to shed blood. And don't think here just physical violence. It's violence of any kind. Their path, in their path, are ruin and misery. Some of us are going through seasons in your life where you know what that looks like in your relationships. On the way of peace, they have not known Our friends, it's significant and sobering to recognize how deeply sin affects our ability to relate to one another. And then as a concluding part in this list of quotations in verse 18, Paul brings up a conclusion. This, just like the, the first description was like a heading... None is righteous. The last one, I, f- I think it's also a conclusion. And this one shows how sin has corrupted us at the level of our vision, of our focus. Look at verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is a way of saying the reason why humanity acts in these ways is because we have taken God out of our sight We no longer fear him. We don't stand in awe of him. His word doesn't matter to us that much. We have replaced him with things in this creation. We have replaced him with ourselves. We have replaced him with our minds, with our thinking, with our reasoning, with what makes sense to us. Now, here's what's surprising about this list of verses from the Old Testament. Most of these, with the exception of one, if you were to look at who the intended audience is in their context of the Old Testament, in the original Old Testament audience, it was referring to Gentiles. But here, the Apostle Paul is mixing these together. Some, the one from Isaiah 59 was clearly talking about Jews the Jewish people, but here he's mixing all of these together, and he's saying, you know, Jewish people, if you've really thought that those verses in the Old Testament that proves that humanity is all sinful, it's all talking about the Gentile people, oh, no, no, it's talking about you as well. Why did Paul take us on this tour of biblical texts from the Old Testament to prove the bondage of sin, the certainty of sin, the universality of sin, and the pervasiveness of sin? Why? And why take us to quotations from the Old Testament? Because the Jewish people needed the extra convincing from God's own word that all humanity is under sin, including them. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. In demonstrating the sinfulness of God's own covenant people, Paul has proven the most difficult part of his case. This is it. I'm a sinner. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I wonder if you're convinced of that. I wonder if you see yourself in the same category. This is why on Sunday mornings, every Sunday, as part of our gathering of worship here corporately, we not only include prayers of praise, we not only include as part of our service prayers of petitions, asking God to do things, we regularly insert in our services prayers of confession of sin because we recognize that we need to be reminded weekly, regularly, We are sinners, and we need Jesus to deal with our sin. I'm a sinner, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there's a second part to this news that Paul gives here, and the second part of this text is shorter and uh, can be summarized in the following way. Not only am I a sinner, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, here's point two. I am guilty, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I am guilty, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. After listening all, to all the verses that prove the universality uh, of, of our condition, the universality of being under sin, Paul closes his thought by making sure people understand the implication of that. What's the implication? of coming to recognize that we all are under sin. The implication is that we are guilty, helpless, and justly deserving God's condemnation. And this strikes at the heart of our American society. We don't like to be helpless. We love the ability to get things done. To come up with a solution. And the idea of finding ourselves helpless on our own before God's judgment seat, it's cringing to us. It hurts our pride. It humbles us. But, you know, that thought puts us in great company with the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people also cringed at the reality that they are helpless and justly deserving God's condemnation. And and, and the reason why they cringed at that was because they had the law and they had circumcision. Just like we saw last week. They thought that their advantages to having God's law, to being a part of God's covenant community... Gave them a pass or an easy easy passage through the judgment. So this is one thing I think we share in common as an American society with the Jewish people. The idea of feeling like we are helpless on our own before God. So Paul says that the things that the law exposed and condemned were not merely for the pagan world, but for those who had the law as well. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and and all the world may become accountable to God. When Paul says that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, he's not saying that somehow those who don't have the law get a pass. He's not saying this is only for the Jews. Oh no, he's already explained how All humanity is already under sin, but the Jewish people needed this extra tying the dots together, uh, making sure that they get this connection, that whatever the law says is for them as well. So they are under condemnation also. But Paul makes clear to help us understand that the purpose of God's law is, is to expose sin to such a degree, there's, there's two so-that statements in this verse, that on one side, our mouths will be closed. What a weird picture. What does that mean? That our mouth, so that every mouth may be closed. Why does that matter? Well, the mouth will be closed as a way of saying... They will, we will have no ability to defend ourselves any longer. No ability to help our case. The reason why Paul points out that our mouths will be closed is because in the previous text, he brought out a number of excuses from this Jewish person he was dialoguing with, and he, he addressed all the excuses because a Jewish person thought that he would have a case, that he could talk himself out of God's judgment and condemnation? And how will you talk yourself out if your mouth is closed? That's the point here. That's the image. The point is to show that on that day, everyone will be helpless to speak back to God on that day. Well, friends, if anyone today has the impression that you can talk yourself out of God's judgment on that final day, let these words awaken you from that false hope. Every mouth will be closed on that day. When people die and they experience that slow death, that slow shutting down of the body, where the functions of the body just all go out, the ability to walk the ability to eat, even the ability to, to drink something, it's in those last days or hours. The last ability usually that is lost is the ability to say a few words. And it's as if Paul is saying here, listen, even your ability to speak, which, which you want to hang on to before you die, even that will be taken away. You will not be able to speak before God's judgment throne because the law has exposed your sin and you will have no more excuses on that final day. Oh, friends, this is how helpless we will be. This is why we must pay attention So if on our own we will be helpless, what can we do? Friends, no degree of observing God's law will get you justified before God's throne. Because observing God's law was never meant to be a matter of simply the external conformity. The law has demanded internal change, a love for God, a love for His word. And we have already broken that. But the second purpose of the law is not only to to expose our sin in order to make us be mute, unable, helpless to help our case on that final day. The purpose of the law is to expose our sin in order to make us accountable to God. And this is where the, the, the verse lands. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is a way of saying that we will be liable to his judgment. That's why Paul goes out of his way to prove why the usefulness of the law was never meant to be a shield from God's judgment, but rather to expose our sinfulness and to drive us to the only viable shield from his judgment, which is not our righteousness but the righteousness of another. And that another is the righteousness of God himself. That's why after verse 20, Paul will introduce a big but. But now. Oh, friends, we must understand that our attempts to think that we will be right before God on that final day of judgment on our own will all prove to be a failure. We, are, we stand condemned before God's throne of judgment on our own. God's law, as one Bible teacher put it, gives to humanity a clear understanding of its accountability before God. I am guilty, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Even if this truth is not pleasant to hear, even if this truth is difficult to hear, it is good for us to hear it if we hear it in time. Just like a medical exam, that may not be fun to hear the results of it, but if you hear it early, if you hear it in time, you may be able to respond to the diagnosis. Let this awareness of of the pervasiveness of sin, of the universality of sin, of the bondage of sin, of the certainty of sin. Let this news of sin, of the condition of your sin, and let the news of the condition of of our guilt before God, let it drive you to your need for Jesus. Oh, friends, if the first point encourages us not to ignore our sinfulness, The second point encourages us not to ignore our condemnation before God. Don't think that if sin is so universal and everyone has it, everyone suffers from it, God will somehow grade on a curve. He will not. We all stand condemned and held accountable to God so that we would turn away from ourselves. And turn to one other. And that other is God's own righteousness. Let me read to you in light of the case that Paul has brought so far into this book. To read Romans three twenty-one. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets... Bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Sometimes people think that they need some sort of spiritual, emotional experience in order to feel something before they turn to God, before they turn to ask Christ to be their Savior and Lord. But this passage tells us that we, know we need no reminder of human experience or of human emotion. What we need the reminder is of Scripture, to hear these words that we are sinners and we stand guilty, rightly and justly deserving God's condemnation, and we stand helpless on our own, Therefore, let this news cause your heart to flee to God and ask him to save you from the wrath to come. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ makes sense when we understand our sin condition and our guilty condition. I wonder if, if your sin and your guilt have been dealt with. If you were to stand today and someone were to ask you, is your sin and guilt condition dealt with? You may say, I don't feel it. I don't don't have any bubbly experience in me. You don't need to have any bubbly experience in you. You've heard the news. You've heard the diagnosis. You've heard the recipe. Turn to Jesus. Today. Let him be your righteousness. Because if you think that you are righteous before God on that day of judgment on your own, the wrath of God will be upon you. So flee to him today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have spoken to us these words that are sober and difficult to hear but you have spoken them to us here today so that we may be humbled in your sight, that our wills might be broken, our understanding might be baffled and also enlightened by your truth. Father, to be reminded that we are not who we think we are and that we need you. We pray that by your Spirit, you would cause our hearts to hunger after you in deeper and greater ways. And we pray for those of us who are already believers that we would grow in our appreciation of what you have done for us in Jesus, having been reminded of our condition under sin. And for those among us who are still under sin, in bondage, in darkness, we pray that you would work powerfully to bring redemption, the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.